Beyond that which is known to man, it is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the Twilight Zone. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, 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 dun. Imagine, if you will, a podcaster, a man who rarely performs the function of said podcaster, mostly because he finds himself busy. He's about to cover the 1983 theatrical version of the hit iconic television show, The Twilight Zone which ran from 1959 to 1964. And while you're imagining that, imagine this also. He's hyped to be back. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Welcome back into my crawly crypt. Uh, better late than never. Uh, celebrating the 41st anniversary. Uh, would have been 40th. But, uh, you know, life happens. 2023. Beat me with a broom. Threw a sack over me and beat me. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this is uh, me coming back with a vengeance to cover this. This being Almost Midnight, a horror anthology podcast. Horror maybe stretching it a bit this week with the Twilight Zone movie. But I think one, I, w- I could promise one is pure horror. Two is debate. Two are debatable and one is just... Uh, syrupy fluff. It's just a big piece of poop. I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, housekeeping. Imagine, if you will, a man who doesn't watch anything. Life is just too busy. And that would be me, except for Saw 10. I saw Saw 10. I had seen Saw 10. I saw, you know, it's kind of awkward saying that. It reminds me back in 2004. When it was all the rage and you'd, you'd go around, hey, did you see Saw? I'm like, no, I haven't been to the park in a minute. I didn't see Saw. <laughs> no, man, did you see Saw? I'm, like, I'm telling you, bro, I have not been to the park. But yeah, Saw 10, if you're a fan of the franchise, it is terrific. It brings the franchise screaming back. Although I, I, I didn't hate the last two. I actually kind of sort of really liked Jigsaw. Spiral was okay. I accept it. I think the fans are a little bit too vitriolic about that. You know, you gotta experiment a little bit. And that's what I think that's what they're trying to do. They, I think they accidentally killed off their lead antagonist too early. And so the rest of the franchise was kind of spinning its wheels. But uh, this one's a nice return to form. And I hope that 11 follows suit. Uh, Other than that, I have not seen anything else in the horror arena except for this 
New Year's Eve, I did my own Twilight Zone marathon. Uh, by marathon, I mean maybe 10 or 12 episodes. Because <laughs> uh, uh, New Year's Eve fell on uh, on my tired day of the week, which is uh, when I get off graveyard shift and get my kids and I try to stay awake for the entire day. And so what I did was, since I haven't had cable since, fuck, I don't know, 2012, I just... Uh, Pulled the box set off the shelf there and just uh, had my my daughter uh, choose a number between one and five. And then there's your season and pick a number between one and five or one and six. And there's your disc. And then surely enough, pick the episode. It, it, it ended pretty good. I had to watch a clinker there. But yeah, but that's very apropos that we're speaking of the Twilight Zone, because that is essentially the impetus for the 1983 theatrical film. Now, this sucker was spearheaded, produced by Steven Spielberg and John Landis. Steven Spielberg had... He had just directed Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. And he produced Poltergeist. So, although, you know, those pretty much put him in the in the realm of uh, nostalgia for the, for the old days. You know, how Indiana Jones was kind of a love letter to those serials of the 20s and 30s and how, uh, you know, Poltergeist was pretty much ripped wholesale from an episode called Little Girl Lost, which I think was in season two of The Twilight Zone. And so I'm, I'm assuming that's what put him in the headspace for this. It was basically two boomers who really wanted to bring this to the screen. And uh, the last anthology that I'm completely aware of Previously, before this was a creep show, and that actually did well in theaters. So I think that was the push for them, and of course, them being nostalgic boomers and then remembering that show fondly. You know, both obviously having having grown up during that time, and so yeah, it came time to uh, adapt it for television, or sorry, adapt it for the film. It was television, and so they hired. Uh, four different directors, four segments with, it's not quite a wraparound, it's more like a prologue and an epilogue, so it doesn't really cut in, it more like just uh, ushers you in and ushers you out. So the director of the opening and closing, and the first segment called Time Out, was John Landis, the director of Animal House, Blues Brothers, and American Werewolf in London, Trading Places, and uh, Coming to America, among others. The director of segment number two, Kick the Can, was Steven Spielberg. And like the like the last two segments, the last three segments, rather, they're all just uh, remakes of old, you know, obviously, episodes of The Twilight Zone. And that's Kick the Can. Uh, yeah, we will rip the Band-Aid off on that one soon. Number three, It's a Good Life, directed by Joe Dante, the director of... Piranha, and The Howling, as well as Gremlins, which he would do a year after this. See, him and Spielberg got to stay friends because uh, he didn't kill three people in his segment. But <laughs> that's getting the cart before the horse. And segment number four, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, which is directed by George Miller of Mad Max and The Road Warrior fame. And Babe. Really strong directors. Really, really good choices, I think, for the material. 
Now, its success can be debated up and down, side to side, but um, there are moments, flashes of brilliance, of of goodness. Um, but ultimately, I think it, it it succeeds at a bare minimum level at being uh, an adequate anthology. But I don't really think the spirit of the Twilight of the Twilight Zone is kind of honored at all in these segments because they range from pure popcorn entertainment fodder and there's no there's really no no big message nothing to take take out from it and nothing to uh to feast on with your mind and uh, any messages it hap it has are completely incidental and lacking style and subtlety entirely so i was debating getting into the tragedy before or after covering the film itself and uh now that i'm now that i'm here up against the wall i think um yeah i think we'll go ahead and take the medicine real quick more popular than the film itself is a tragic tragic accident on set of john landis's segment timeout in which three people tragically died uh, veteran actor vic morrow and these two amazing children who were playing young Vietnamese children. And uh, essentially what happened, the, the bare bones, I'll try to race through it. Most people probably have heard of it. They were filming a scene that clearly didn't make the final cut. Otherwise it would have been, it would have went from Twi uh, Twilight Zone to Faces of Death. And um, I think they may have actually, the footage may have wound up in one of those, or at least it's, it's the footage seek that they um that those misanthropic kind of morbid bastards kind of stick out on the internet there's a there's a scene where he's saving these two vietnamese children from attacking american forces and basically this was his moment of redemption he doesn't really have a solid arc in the in the finished segment we'll cover that but he was he had like a, a bit of a heroic arc where he saved these two vietnamese children he he was carrying them in thigh high water or hip high water away from uh, explosions and soldiers and a helicopter. Unfortunately, John Johnny Boy Landis. First off, these children weren't even supposed to be on set. This was extremely late at night, hazardous conditions. They got paid under the table. I believe even associate producer George Folsey Jr. Uh, hid them from the inspector when he stopped by. And so these these poor children weren't even supposed to be on set. So here's Landis going crazy with the pyrotechnics, you know, explosions, more grander, more explosions and telling the helicopter to get closer and closer and closer to Vic Morrow and the two young children. And uh, apparently an explosion was set off too close to the helicopter. It delaminated the tail rotor and sent the thing crashing down. Unfortunately, it it, it landed on our three actors and. It crushed one of the children and decapitated Vic Morrow and the other children, the other child. And this was kind of the big push, a drastic overhaul in safety on film sets. This, you know, I, I and I have no idea how John Landis let this happen, because I don't know if you remember this, but in Blues Brothers, there was like a, a hundred car pileup of police cars. Apparently not a scratch, but he, I don't know what he was thinking. And then there's that, uh, that 
entropy scene at the end of American Werewolf in London, uh, uh, the rampage through Piccadilly Circus with the werewolf, and nobody gets hurt. But um, after this, it went to trial, and uh, it took a few years, but they finally came to an agreement or to a judgment, which some find to be controversial, myself included, in which case none of the principal filmmakers were ever found culpable in any way of the this uh, tragedy i don't know you know i guess maybe it's that shallow human instinct of revenge where you just feel like some that a bigger a bigger fallout must have happened and uh not really unfortunately um landis will go on to direct one of his best films after this trading places which i absolutely adored but it's kind of hard to take knowing that he's coming fresh off of uh you know, murdering three people with his uh, negligence, with his bravado, his ill-placed fucking bravado, which ended the lives of three people. And that's that's kind of a hard thing to get over, walking into this film. <laughs> I don't know how it would make you feel first time watching it, because unfortunately, I didn't. I hadn't found out until I'd seen the film like two or three times. This thing played pretty pretty frequently on hbo and the like i think i I also caught it on monster vision with joe bob briggs at one point but uh unfortunately i fell asleep uh right after the it's a good life segment effectively missing the best segment so i couldn't tell you how that would make you feel upon first watch but uh it's startling it's apparently that it feels like i believe that's the last thing they had to shoot because they, it feels like they got all the other footage, which is even more disturbing because that means that they saved arguably um, some pretty intense stunts to for the end of the shoot, which I suppose is probably, you know, status operating procedure just in case somebody gets uh, hurt or sidelined or decapitated and crushed by a helicopter. I, I'm kind of kind of shocked, if I'm honest, that they still included the footage that they had shot. Because even though Vic Morrow is amazing in the segment, he shows he still has amazing talent. But it just feels, I don't know, it's, it's hard to articulate. Morbid, certainly. Uh, distressing. It's kind of hard to, to enjoy the segment, knowing, the, knowing this. And so it's a wonder, not only did they not scrap the entire project because this was the first segment shot, not including the, oh, the prologue and epilogue, that they didn't just either scrap it entirely or at least at the very least scrap the segment itself. The backlash caused a lot of like turmoil on the set. Steven Spielberg, uh, he was originally going to, to direct a kind of a much darker segment. It was almost probably leaning more towards horror. I think I, if I remember correctly, something to do with Halloween maybe. And uh, after the tragedy, he, he just, he kind of picked like, the most syrupy sweet kind of segment and it arguably hurts the film even further but i get where he's coming from you know and that uh, that ended his friendship with john landis uh, i'm sure with a lot of people and john landis and even george miller he had barely can he had barely finished filming and he was so disgusted by what had taken place that he actually left he just said all right we're done shooting fuck right off and I believe it was Joe Dante had to finish editing his segment. So that's a that's a short 
preview on probably one of the darkest moments in the history of Hollywood that unfortunately hangs over this fucking movie like a big angry cloud. So now that everybody's good and depressed, let's talk about the film itself. You know what I've noticed? Uh, apropos of nothing, is that I have two cats. They're awesome, I guess, sometimes. But um, they don't really know you exist until you're sitting doing something that's being recorded in poster for posterity. So and at that point, you're suddenly their favorite person. So all of a sudden, they're jumping on top of the desk and acting a fool. This one's standing on my mixer right now. She's just standing there like she's kind of staring off into nothing. Her little paw. She's about to turn it off. Nope, she didn't turn it off. All right. Will you fuck off? Yep. Oh, there, right on the on and off button. Nope. I think she's gonna she's gonna make it her bed, folks. She's going to lay on a mixer with about five hundred buttons jutting into the air. And spitefully, I can only assume. And she's staring at me right now. You got a problem, bro? You want I, I can bother Gordon if you want to take this outside. I'm trying to talk about the Twilight Zone, 1983. Twilight Zone, the movie. Released by Warner Brothers. This bad boy opened up June 26, 1983 with an estimated budget of apparently around $10 million. Which obviously went a lot further than it did 40 years later. Grossing just $29 million, just north of $29 million, Which isn't amazing. Yeah, like I said, you figure about double that for advertising. And uh, I believe they had to pay through the nose to the family's victims. Sorry, to the victims' families. Yeah, that's the time to laugh, isn't it? <laughs> when you say the term victims' family. So between, you know, paying for the negligent homicide, between all that manslaughter and craft services, yeah, they probably barely broke even so not considered a, a huge success by any means the prologue is easily my favorite part of the film and unfortunately it lasts for about five minutes and the and then it opens the film it finds two two men uh jauntily singing along to an eight track of midnight special by creedence clearwater revival and the song is a banger and it's Albert Brooks and Dan Aykroyd driving at night, just rocking out. And it sounds something like this. Let the midnight special, please don't sue me. CCR is awesome, by the way. This is easily one of my favorite tracks. Getting their groove on, and all of a sudden, you hear the... And the tape from the 8-track starts spitting out. I believe it's an 8-track. Tra I don't know if it's it may be a little early for tapes. I have no idea, but I don't know. To anybody who was born before, I don't know, 2000, 1995, um, there were these things called tapes. They put songs on them. <laughs> this was before this thing called the compact disc, where you also put songs on it. This was before you just literally had every song at your fingertip. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. What a wonderful world it is. Anywho, they just had an eight track and it just had CCR. I don't know what the other tracks were on there. Probably Midnight Special. I don't know. Maybe Low Die. Maybe a Fortunate Son. Proud Mary. Who knows? Anywho, Albert Brooks is all dejected. 
He says, damn it, now there's no entertainment. Not entirely sure why they had to turn on the radio, because I do believe there was radio back then, but nope. And I've read that, um, basically, <laughs> he says to Dan Aykroyd, he's like, we could just talk, but, you know, I was like, I know where you're from. And so I, I never caught that, but the idea apparently was that Dan Aykroyd was a hitchhiker that Albert Brooks picked up. Uh, for those born before 2000, 1995, hitchhiking was something that you did if you really wanted to be killed or violently sexually assaulted in the 70s, 60s. And uh, basically, yeah, you just, if you, you just walk along the street with your thumb out and uh, somebody would eventually, you know, pull alongside you, welcome you inside and uh, in short form, uh, murder you. Uh, assault and murder you or cut you up or you get to the next town it really was a crapshoot you're taking your life in your own hands at that rate uh, i don't just get a bike but no i never caught this the first time i seen this because i or i'm not even sure if that's what you're supposed to take from it, but apparently yeah so it's dan Aykroyd's riding shotgun albie brooks is driving we lost our credence and so now it's time to talk and uh, it does sound like uneventful but i there's something that i love about the ambiance of driving at night it's one of the reasons why the hitchhiker is one of my all-time favorite anthology segments from creep show 2 i just there's something about it it's just it feels equally claustrophobic and kind of been to like the dark and possibilities and i don't know i'm rambling at this point but i don't know but the, the, yeah they start talking about play tv theme songs and so we get to watch these two dipshits badly sing hum out these tv theme songs i believe hawaii 5.0 was one of them national geographic perry mace i don't know anyway dan Aykroyd says out of nowhere you remember the twilight zone and then albert brooks goes breaking the fourth wall because like you're sitting here watching this segment and you're thinking, well, this is the twilight zone. So that's an interesting way to start it. And then these two kind of reflect on the history of the twilight zone on episodes that they remember. And I believe kind of stopwatch was mentioned time enough. At last was mentioned at one point they get, they they get into a small argument about whether or not a kind of stopwatch was an outer limits episode or a twilight zone which was kind of kind of nifty because that's always been a contention amongst fans is that like, are you a zone or a limits guy? And I am a hundred thousand percent a zone guy. I've had outer limits sitting on my shelf for years now. And although I, I, I like it, it just doesn't grab you the same way zone does. Begin to have a discussion, a lively little discussion about what's scary, what isn't. And uh, Dan Aykroyd just inquires, uh, you, you, you want to see something really scary? And then Albert Brooks, instead of, you know, becoming <laughs> like paranoid or hypervigilant, he's just like, uh, yeah, sure. I'll take a gander at something scary. And then he uh, proceeds to show him the footage from John Landis's segment. <laughs> Three people died. No, I'm kidding. That's yeah, because that's what you want to kid about. Jesus Christ, I apologize. I apologize, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, he said, you want to see something scary? Albie Brooks says, yes. Dan Aykroyd tells him, pull over so I can show you. And like a dum-dum, Albert Brooks does. And uh, Dan, Dan Aykroyd kind of like turns away from him. And Albert Brooks says, what, 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 
what are you doing? Dan Aykroyd turns back and he's like this, this white or blue faced kind of, I don't know what he's supposed to, a zombie or like some wicked ghost or something. I, and then the audio is like, a, sounds like a panther shriek or like, I think it was the same thing they played over the, uh, that dream sequence from American World in London, where he's in the middle of the woods, where he scares the nurse by opening his eyes. They play the same thing. I don't know. It's hard to explain. Fuck it. And uh, you you just, uh, the camera pulls up into the night and you just, you hear what is presumably Dan Aykroyd removing the head from Albert Brooks. So, R.I.P. Albie. Then we get our theme song. Which I, I've already done a stirring dysfunctional rendition of and if you ever you know if you mention this that's probably one of the few things they know about it that or maybe uh there's something on the wing or you know burgess meredith breaking his glasses speaking of burgess meredith taking over narration duties from rod serling who ordinarily it was the obviously the creator of twilight zone and then did the intros and outros but we get uh, Burgess Meredith, and the uh, reasons they picked him were because he's an amazing actor, is number one. Number two is that he is one of the few actors who had been in more than one or two episodes. So he, at the end of the day, I think he tied Jack Klugman for the, for the most star, uh, star performances on The Twilight Zone as opposed to just kind of showing up. Because otherwise it would be like random dude number six who like who ends up in the background of a lot of these episodes so other than that yeah burgess meredith who was in the episodes time enough at last the obsolete man devil's printer and mr dingle the strong so he's got a really really good resume there because uh those are three very good episodes and then the other, the other one's called mr dingle the strong <laughs> it's kind of supposed to be more of a uh comedy episode and zone doesn't do comedy very well every every attempted at humor is amateur hour and cringy uh, burgess meredith does his rendition of the uh the preamble the well uh there's a fifth dimension blah 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 and then he launches into telling us about this man in tale number one uh he starts saying he's a angry man a you know a bitter man uh, who has has a chip on his shoulder the size of the national debt which i've always loved that line and it's actually reused from an old twilight zone episode i can't remember who i can't remember the episode every time it, it comes to my brain and it just flies away but yeah he says here's this man but uh vic morrow this is the late vic morrow who was the father of or grandfather? I don't know. Uh, some relation to Jennifer Jason Lee. So right after she had had her film debut in 1981 with Eyes of a Stranger, uh, two years later, unfortunately, she would miss. She would lose her, her father. He goes into this bar and uh, <clears throat> meets up with his two buddies, his two, you know, middle-aged white buddies. So this is a, a triple threat. He sits down, 
and, oh, one of his buddies is Charlie Hallahan. Charles Hallahan from The Thing was where we would know him from, or Warlock, the Armageddon. Uh, super good character actor. I wish he was still with us. It's just full of dead people. It gets... <laughs> that's a, Oh, that's fucked up. But, yeah, Vic Morrow comes. He sits down with his buddies and briefly sexually assaults the waitress, which was just kind of status or standard operating procedure back in the back in that time unfortunately uh i think you could probably get all the way up to taking your actually taking out your dick and chasing her with it anything up to that they would just like wave it off and be like oh oh you men <laughs> what a fucked up time there was to be alive vic morrow is commiserating with his two white buddies about how he had been passed over for a promotion at work and the promotion had actually been given to a a Jewish person a Jewish uh, person I'm gonna struggle with this because I'm <laughs> I'm just a lame lame white guy and I I'm not, I'm not even sure if that's that has to be a, a that has to be an acceptable nomenclature right just Jewish because I think Louis CK had a bit where he said that uh, Jewish was the only ethnicity that was also a slur if you put a little, <laughs> you know, a little emphasis on it. Uh, but yeah, he got pro passed over the promotion and he's flinging out uh, every every Jewish slang there is, which I, I can only think of two, but yeah, he, he tosses them out there. And then apropos of nothing, like his buddies seem like normal dudes. Like they, you know, they might be casually bigoted, like, you know, grand majority of white men, but they weren't, they were just like, you know, take it easy, man. You know, he's like, you're being a little rough, like trying to talk sense into him essentially, which makes you wonder if this was an off night for this guy. And ordinarily he's just a really good buddy. Cause otherwise, how does he have these two friends who were just like, meet, meet me at a bar. And then I want you to go on the biggest racist tirade. You can, he launches on this tirade about, you know, certain ethnicities like this, this ethnicity owns my houses. I live like blocks away from African-Americans only. He didn't say African-Americans. I will let you just imagine what he said. And, uh, you nailed it, nailed it in one. So this racist piece of poopy is kind of overheard by these, uh, this, these couple African-American gentlemen at the bar. One of them is played by Stephen Williams, whom, you may who is best known in the horror communities having played Creighton Duke, arguably the best and single redeeming quality of Jason Goes to Hell. I'll be honest, like it's so batshit that I love Jason Goes to Hell. I know it's gonna get me that's gonna get me hate in the horror community. Uh they'll take away my horror street cred. And to Stephen Williams and his buddies credit, they they approach the, the situation very very diplomatically where he they kind of he kind of says to his friends you you might guys you guys just mind keeping a little quiet like that's you're racist that's awesome but can you just keep it can you be quiet quieter and and also still racist they didn't say any of that they just they just said please please keep it down and then vic morrow a dickhead he pushes the guy a little bit and uh eventually they kind of he kind of just takes off he's like you know what, fuck this. The whole world's against me because I'm a white man. I'm a white man. My life is 
terrible. His buddy's like, oh, come on, but just come back, you know, maybe drink a little bit more. That'll help your, your anger, your attitude there. And he says, no, nah, I'm out. I'm out. He's 5,000. So he steps outside the tavern and into Nazi occupied France. He's not sure of that yet. He just knows he stepped outside and we're not in Kansas anymore. We are somewhere else. And uh, it wasn't until coming across a couple of gentlemen with swastikas. Sorry, I said gentlemen. Pieces of shit with swastikas. And we got ourselves a little time warp here, gentlemen. Well, essentially what it is... It's, it's kind of, it borrows the pastiche from a, a second or third season episode of Twilight Zone called The Quality of Mercy. Um, the other man lives, lives out a scenario in which he is this, uh, the, uh, this other race in the, in the middle of wartime. But they kind of borrow that, that small idea. These goose-stepping buttholes, they said, uh, uh they're talking in German, th- and they're like, "Hey, what are you doing out here, you you Jewish person?" Because they they they, they view him as Jewish, although I'm not sure entirely how you would pick up on somebody's Jewishness immediately upon seeing them, unless they're like Hasidic Jewish and like they got the curls and the the whatnot. I oh my god, I hope I am not being oh because I love I love all ethnicities. They take his card, they kind of shake him down and discover that he's Jewish. And so he kind of, he hightails it, he spits foot. And uh, actually a pretty good little chase here. Hides by or near a dumpster and then he ends up uh, going into the apartment building after they pass him for a little bit. And he tries to implore this family to let him stay there. Obviously the Nazis are looking for them and this kind of gives you an insight into his his first his first example of living as another ethnicity being hunted by the nazis and then and then asking you know for he's a proud guy he's a proud boy <laughs> he 100% would have been at that january 6th thing but um yeah he found out what it was to be on the other end of the vitriol like he i think at first they they consider it, and then, then unfortunately, the Nazis come knocking, and uh, he ends up on the ledge to try to escape from. Them. They're taking pot shots at him. I think he takes takes one in the arm. If not, it was a violent graze, and he he ends up falling off the ledge. And before he hits the ground, all of a sudden, we are in the deep south. He is uh, well. We presume it's. <laughs> It's. I think it's supposed to be set in the the sixties, but uh, honestly, <laughs> as fucked up as it is, you could have just like said modern day, <laughs> modern. Which I, I hate to laugh at because it's fucking a terrible thing. But you could tell me this was like modern day Texas because some some areas they still they're still thick with racists. Like at one point, I was hoping we could just like you're never gonna get fully rid of racism, but I thought it was was on its way out we had it on its you know we had it on the run and then uh, certain members of that persuasion actually became elected president and that happened so he's in the he's in the deep south in the 60s probably 
Alabama, Louisiana, or somewhere down there. And these uh, these these white gentlemen are just like standing over them, and they're like, "We got you now." And and then he said African American, but not that word. And there's Klansmen behind them. They like they have a cross burnt. There's a cross burning in the back, and uh, he's all of a sudden transported, like I said, to the deep south. And uh, they view him as an African American, even though he appears to us as a uh, a, a very middle aged white person who looks like Big Morrow. And so clearly they, you know, they're under the impression that he's African-American and don't worry. They didn't put him in blackface, although I, I don't know. The movie can't get much more fucked up, but I could imagine that that would be, that would be a step too far, but no, they just, they simply view him as, as such. Uh, one of the racists, the one with the most lines is actually played by John Larroquette for the horror buffs. He do, he reads the opening scrawl on the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and a couple of them subsequently. But he also played the skirt chasing. Uh, definitely wouldn't fly today, Dan Fielding, in the the uh, awesome sitcom Night Court. But this was right right before Night Court started, so he kind of did this, and then next thing you know, he's Dan Fielding. Yeah. Uh, almost walks away with that show entirely. I got to be honest with you. They pull him up and they're, they're saying, I don't know, whatever racist people say, like, uh, we're going to hang you pretty good boy. And uh, in the scuffle, he actually knocks one of the idiot clan members onto the cross, which promptly sets him on fire. The big dumb oaf. And, uh, they, they were trying to put him out quote unquote. And so now, uh, Vic Morrow is on the run from, uh, Cletus and Jethro and he's running through the the fields and uh there's I think there, there's a dog chasing him so they're taking pot shots at him so obviously obviously at this point like they're they're hammering it home um Twilight Zone couldn't be argued to have been the most subtle show but I honestly do believe that a lot of the 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 topics that they cover these important prescient uh cultural topics they they didn't quite do it as bluntly or as forcefully as this one whereas first he was like mistaken for a for a jewish person next he is mistaken for an african-american in the south in the 60s and then next stop is uh he kind of they kind of end in a scuffle by a by a pawn and then he jumps Jumps or falls in, and then he he comes out the pond, and all of a sudden he's in the late sixties, early seventies, Vietnam. And there's these uh, there's these soldiers, and they're going off uh, like enter <laughs> cliched Vietnam dialogue. Somebody's worried about Charlie. They they actually talked about um, one of the privates in the this platoon. You overhear him saying, "We shouldn't have fragged Lieutenant Niedermeyer," and that is. A callback to John Landis's Animal House, 1978, in which uh, we find out uh, with a scroll that Niedermeyer, the the douchebag, he went to Vietnam and he got killed by his own people. So it kind of does a little callback to that. That's I think that's kind of fun. Uh, it would be it would be more fun. This this whole segment would actually be more fun if it hadn't if they hadn't killed three people making it. I, I don't mean to run that into the ground but that's just that's what we have to deal with when we're watching the first segment 
they get wind of him, and surely enough, before you know it, he's he's running from them and getting shot at by them. Uh, they eventually huck a grenade at him, which blows him out of the water and back onto the streets of Nazi-occupied France, whereupon he is fallen upon and thrown into a train car with other people. Oof, this is hard. <laughs> they do tackle difficult stuff all the time in the Twilight Zone, but this is particularly brutal. Him and other uh, quote-unquote undesirables who were unfortunately executed in the during that period of time, disgustingly. And uh, the implication being that the we're going to a camp, and we can see as the train pulls off, his buddies outside the bar in real time, like looking out for him, not seeing him. So, so the Twilight Zone kind of just swallowed him right up. And uh, I kind of like I kind of like a lot of the themes that he's working with here. I love the idea of taking like a completely vile racist person and kind of putting them through this 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 scenario live this like alternate reality where he kind of feels it from the other end and i i love that 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 is an important message like once the shoes on the other foot it kind of it's not so much as expressed to you as much as it is kind of like hitting you with a hammer over the head like which is which is unfortunate because vic morrow as i said earlier he he's really good in this segment like he he had been like he had been kind of sidelined. He'd kind of been doing B movies at the time. Uh, he one one he did a couple of years before this, which I which I fucking love, is called uh, Humanoids from the Deep. But this was kind of supposed to be his comeback. You know, I I feel bad like he was gonna have his Robert Forster moment, but unfortunately he got taken from us. And uh, so the segment ends. The vile racist gets carted off to a concentration camp. Uh, which would kind of make you wonder why this kind of cosmic equi- equilibrium swallowed him up, taught him these things, and then said, and then he goes to the concentration camp. This kind of reminds me, there's an episode of Twilight Zone which is particularly dark but extremely important and, and uh, unfortunately somewhat prescient, uh, in which an old uh, Nazi, an, an old SS officer goes to Auschwitz to kind of relive the the good old days so basically most people visit that place to to see the the utter degradation the to get like a proof of the evil that happened and he's kind of like relishing and he slowly like becomes more terrorized by the by the ghostly occupants of auschwitz and that that reminded me a lot of the obviously because the you know concentration camp theme the vile racism theme but at the end of the at the end of the segment, they kind of they frighten the SS officer to death. But I, I know that's because he's uh, he was a monster. He was built to be exactly and only a monster. And so the retribution felt more far more earned. Whereas in this like he's a racist. He's got a lot of the wrong ideas. But you know he wasn't a Nazi. I mean yet, but <laughs> I don't. I like I'm I'm a I'm an optimistic person. I believe people can change. But they have to want to change and they have to be in the right headspace for it. Unfortunately, this guy wasn't and never would be. And so they they kind of gave him a taste of his own medicine and then killed him 
it's basically the writer taking a hammer with the that has the name racism is bad and then that's just them beating you over the head with it for 20 minutes um that being said it is well done it's well shot uh, it feels wrong i guess complimenting anything about this other than vic morrow but there was some decent work put in the the production design it's difficult to do obviously time traveling with production design because it either comes off as it either comes off as too hackneyed or you know not hackneyed enough it's kind of hard to strike a right balance but but it's not bad it's it's it could be worse so originally the segment which unfortunately killed the three people that was as i said it was supposed to be a moment a small moment of redemption for this character in which he comes upon these two vietnamese children and they're being fallen upon by the american platoon and he carries them off he, he saves them but that's i don't know that seems a little incongruous even even as it sits because they're just they just killed him at the end maybe i don't know maybe there was this a cruel tragically ironic type scenario in which he was he became like a fully reformed racist and it's like maybe save somebody's like soul somebody's life and then he just dies <laughs> i mean i don't think they they went that deep definitely not a 1983 film about a 1950s tv show i could see that it doesn't change the narrative so much it does give him a tiny arc but Considering the fact that his plight was never resolved in any way, shape, or form, and he was just merely uh, executed, for lack of a better word. It's kind of an odd way to open it. <laughs> this is the only uh, somewhat original story that's that appears in this anthology. That's not, I mean, obviously that's not a remake of an old episode. But as I said, it did borrow several qualities from A Quality of Mercy. But at the end of the day, it's just, it feels, it feels like a miss. Do you, do you know what I mean? It feels like when you put a puzzle together and there's just a piece or two missing. Uh, I feel like there, there could have been something interesting and special here. The, the message is important. The delivery is flawed. We can put it, we, we'll, we, we'll put it that way. But uh, Vic Morrow did a great job. So, uh, so far, a uh, good opening. Although, if I if I may say this very quickly, I forgot to mention this. As far as the opening goes, uh, him turning into like a a ghost zombie, which whatever he turned into, and then apparently ripping off Albert Brooks's head. That's it. It's not. It's not the Twilight Zone. Like I love the Twilight Zone, and I love the opening, but I I couldn't tell you how how much they kind of missed the entire point of the Twilight Zone. There were scary episodes i'd say like one in every five or six is a really is a really kind of thrilling episode but to say like this is this is a preamble for like a twilight zone experience and it's like get the hell out of here <laughs> like that's that's not i can see that being the opening of a, a tales from the crypt movie that's done like twilight zone the movie which by the way i would love but the IP of Tales from the Crypt, I don't think, is quite quite attractive enough for Hollywood. And and besides that, they still can't fucking figure out who owns that. Like, I don't know how they keep selling the Warner DVDs. Like, I bought two sets. I don't know how. But anyway, I'm sorry. Apropos of nothing. Yeah, first segment, 
eh, it's not bad. I'll tell you what, if it hadn't killed three people, I could see myself giving the segment a higher, a higher mark, but as it sits, I'm, I'm afraid I can do six out of 10. It's just barely above average, but uh, considering, you know, considering that it killed three people, I think we can give it a zero out of 10, but if you can divorce yourself from that, it's honestly, it's honestly not bad. Burgess, uh, Burgess Meredith returns to, to usher us into the next one. It's obviously voiceover. And here we get Steven Spielberg's attempt to kind of soften <laughs> the, uh, the uh, darkness around the, this particular film. So he takes an episode called Kick the Can, which is not one of my favorites. Honestly, it's it's okay, but it, it feels it's just very cheesy and, well, obviously lighthearted, but the episode was ultimately obviously much better than this one, even though we have the amazing Scatman Carruthers. It's just worth it to watch him act, this segment. It's just going to be a shame about everything else, and but we got to spend some time with Scatman Carruthers, yeah, seeing him play a good uh, honestly wholesome good character which he does so well even if he shows up like five ten minutes in the killer rap movie called deadly eyes like that like even when he just pops up it's like it's Scatman. do you like some ice cream dog basically Scatman arrives at a nursing home the the narration tells us that it, this is a uh, convalescence home obviously full of uh, the elderly there's some some woman there who has given them a speech about vitamins and the kind of activities. There's a elderly sex joke in there somewhere. This is very, very batteries not included era Spielberg where he just kind of piles on the Amblin schmaltz. And if you know what I mean, you know what I mean. Steven Spielberg is obviously attracted to the material. I think it's a shame that everything's a shame, by the way, like we can say, enjoy this film that killed three people. Unfortunately, but it's 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 a shame that we didn't get whatever Spielberg wanted to to give us instead of and instead of this piece of fluff. By the way, I'm probably gonna speed through this one just because there isn't a lot to chew on in this in this episode. Basically, he arrives at the convalescent's home. He starts telling them about how they should be more active and you know playing and you know living life, living life to the fullest. You elderly people live your life to the fullest. And there's one particularly curmudgeonly man. He's like, are you believing this nonsense? But he's got a good reason to be bitter because uh, he thought he was going to, you know, go home and, you know, not live in a nursing home. Looks like the nicest nursing home I've ever seen, though. It's pretty clean. <laughs> there's a lot of nurses. It seems pretty good. As far as that, as far as that goes, I'm not going to live to be elderly, unfortunately. I have been far too destructive towards my own body. <laughs> But there is there is a lot to be said about how Spielberg directed this. It's it's not badly made by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, every actor on screen, I think, knew exactly what they were doing and what performance they were giving. I just think that maybe the overall tone came off, as I said, just a, little, a lot more schmaltzy than it let on. So Scatman, uh, that night, convinces them all to play a game of kick the cat. <laughs> I'll never do that again. That's my that's my value. Anyway, kick the can. 
I had never heard of this game. I kind of thought it was almost more like like a hide and go seek, but with a kick the can twist. I don't know. It's it's somewhere in between. Except for the car the carmudgeonly man obviously stayed behind. But all the other all the other old folks are outside and the, once they start playing it they're transformed into children. So you have these children who like range from like I don't know 7 or 8 to like 11, 12, 13. And you have these kind of children doing these kind of cutesy impressions of the the older of their elder counterparts. <laughs> the one gal who plays the young version of this character played by Selma Diamond, who I who I know from obviously, uh, once again, Night Court. This is a Night Court heavy episode, so the first ba- the first arguably best bailiff Selma. That's who it is. But she has that kind of gravelly voice. So you have this little girl like doing the when I was young, and it. <laughs> It is. It's kind of. It's it's hokey. It's 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 cheesy. This whole thing is very cheesy. So after a, a night of uh, exuberant kick the can, running around, being the beautiful children that they are, they kind of arrive in a very like kind of forced, inorganic way at the realization that they they don't enjoy being elderly, but that it's it's how they're supposed to be like this is they don't want to like grow up and see all the people they love die again and so they all of them except for this one dude (laughs) the one dude who becomes like this 12 or 13 year old stud he's like not me man i'm just i'm having too much fun (laughs) so the the fogies uh convince scat man to uh give them their uh their elderly bodies back and uh they're kind of all in their beds like jumping around and the one guy the curmudgeonly guy goes up to the 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 kid who remained a kid and he says like like take me with you i want to be young again so i'm gonna be on i'm gonna shoot you straight he tells him to fuck right off no he's just like the magic doesn't work that way i'm sorry you can't come with me so he fucks off and uh, apparently this entire thing kind of opens up this this old bitter man's heart and uh, he kind of embraces, they kind of embrace their age, which is, it's a kind of, a, it is a pretty profound concept. I kind of like it. I like the idea. It's just, as I said, it's just the executions, just too cutesy by half, too cutesy by a whole. So in this syrupy sweet episode where not a single thrilling thing happens, I, this honestly feels like like a practice run for what Steven Spielberg would do fairly shortly after this, which is amazing stories. If you haven't seen amazing stories, it's this uh, anthology television show, which ran for two seasons. And they kind of, they kind of varied in that one too, just like twilight zone. You'd have your, your kind of comedic episodes. You'd have your horror episodes. You'd have your, they're kind of supposed to be these like comic interpretations, like, first episode's about a ghost train the second episode's about a high school jock who becomes magnetic because of meteor question mark so you can see like that that's that's what that would become and this feels like as i said in my long-winded way uh that's that's probably where amazing stories came from so you're just like you're kind of not feeling quite in the pocket of twilight zone because you still you have two 
lackluster segments with um, extremely heavy-handed ideas. It's just, I do still like this movie. There's a good deal left to like about this movie, but it's hard to look past some of the decisions made. And I think Spielberg was up against the wall. And considering that, it's not a bad it's not it's not dire it's not unwatchable by any stretch of the imagination as i said it's just it doesn't feel very twilight zone the the ending actually changed from the episode though i kind of like the episode's version because i think it's more realistic and uh in that scenario i believe they all just stayed children and just ran off and i gotta be honest with you i think that's how it would work (laughs) i don't think there would be any like clarity and any of them would be like, you know what, on second thought, I like falling apart physically with my entire life, every joy I've ever had in my rear view. And I would love to just sit and rot in the AC in a convalescence home. That would be amazing. So, yeah, I call bullshit on that. But it's, yeah, it's it's pretty cute. Like I said, it would have been a good Amazing Stories episode. Nothing here really to chew on, you know. Embrace your age. There you go. There's your t- there's your message. <laughs> Burgess Meredith and his narration ushers us from Kick the Can, segment number two, to segment number three, It's a Good Life. Now, this one is directed by Joe Dante. Joe Dante, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm being an idiot. And this was kind of his, his big break, bigger break. I, he had only made up to this point... I believe Piranha and the Howling, as I said. But he would he would go on to do Gremlins and kind of blow up. But no, this was uh, him very early, and uh, Steven Spielberg was a big fan of his of Piranha. He said it was easily the best of all the Jaws ripoffs. And uh, I'd probably have to agree, although I kind of think Orca's up there. Got a soft spot for Orca. No, this one is a remake of It's a Good Life. One of the most infamous popular episodes of, I would think, easily top five of the Twilight Zone, which was also kind of parodied in one of the one of the better Treehouse of Horror segments in The Simpsons. This young woman who is a very very young and gorgeous Kathleen Quinlan, and she's playing a school teacher who's just a wee bit lost, and she's at this diner, and the uh, the man at the diner is actually played by Dick Miller because this is a. This is a Joe Dante film, and uh, Dick Miller, uh, before he passed away, R.I.P., was kind of his good luck charm. So he would pop up in everything he did. Uh, him, Robert Picardo, he used to have a he used to have a pretty big roster. I like Joe Dante. I I, I kind of wish we had more stuff from him. I think the the most recent things he did was burying the X and the Hole, was it? Which I actually heard decent things about both, but I have yet to see. This young teacher. Uh, Helen Foley. Not entirely sure why I remember that. <laughs> I sure as fuck can't keep any real names in my head. She notices this boy who's like playing this arcade game. This little toe-headed boy. And every time he... he This is very 80s. Every time he hits the side of the arcade game, it kind of makes the television go staticky. And uh, this dude straight up was about ready to take this kid to... to I almost said Pound Town, but that's not the implication I, w- I was kind of leaning into. Um, he's going to, like, assault this kid. And Helen kind of steps in. She's like, "You're, yeah, you're going to go ahead and not. 
uh, beat the shit out of this child right now in front of me. So when he's all squared away, she goes to, you know, to take off. She's got, you know, her way home now or where the hell she was going. And uh, she's, uh, you know, she's pulling out there and then she uh, she hits the kid with her car. Which is insane. And it turns out to be, you know, orchestrated by by the kid, but it's still kind of like, whoa. And don't worry, it wasn't like one of those like flying dummies type things. It was just like one of the light dip. Probably just, you know, ding, hit the bike and then knocked him over. And then she's like distraught about it. But, you know, she grabs his uh, his battered bike sickle and then throws him in the in the side seat there and says, all right, I'll take you home. Where do we live? This child ushers her into his house, which is inhabited by uh, a mother, a father, a grandfather, and a sister. And another sister we find out about in a little bit. And uh, they all seem like really nervous right away. There's something going on. If, you, if you're familiar with the episode from of The Twilight Zone that obviously preceded this, uh, the, the concept of it was that this town was kind of held captive by this, this young boy who has like godlike powers so he can make things disappear and appear at will and he could read your mind and you had to think good thoughts or he would wish you out into the cornfield i think they kind of they took cornfield in the segment and it became cartoon land which was interesting that's an interesting switch up there so his you know his family's acting like crazy right away and uh Speaking of The Simpsons, the, the older sister is played by Nancy Cartwright, excellent voice actress and unfortunate Scientologist, Nancy Cartwright. <laughs> but she's just this this, uh, this young girl here. She's just a little whippersnapper. And the grandfather is played by Kevin McCarthy, who actually appeared in an episode of the original Twilight Zone. Long live Walter Jameson. There you go. The only notes I took for this was the intro, which I always remember the words, but I don't, I can't remember the sequence. So I could ramble, ramble the whole thing off and he kind of switches it up here and there. So that kind of makes it a little foggy in the memory there. And then it's just, it just kind of becomes like a cacophony of like bizarre overacting and the parents, everybody being nervous. The young boy takes the teacher on a tour of his house in which we see this young woman watching television and uh andy says that this is my other sister but she doesn't talk these days and then she's like huh and then moves on and then you see the the woman sorry you see the front of this girl's face and she has no mouth like her lip just continues down to her chin so yeah he maimed one of his sisters with his godlike powers so there's there's one strike on this kid and it's there becomes uh, essentially a power struggle. Like the older sister starts uh, protesting, you know, they're eating like peanut butter burgers and he says it's his birthday, but uh, I get a feeling that every day is his birthday. kind. <laughs> and just, uh, she just gets fed up of like kowtowing to this kid. And then Anthony kind of, did I say Andy early? I meant Anthony. So that's my bad. I'm sorry. He says, I'm wishing you into cartoon land and then zaps her into a live action cartoon or like a literal cartoon, but she's still live action and she's being chased by this cartoon monster. And this is like the, the child that they're going to ask you to have pity for at the end. 
basically the the teacher kind of takes him and like kind of like hard truths him and says like this isn't how you get people to love you this isn't how you have a family these people were all like strangers that he just kind of somewhat kept prisoner in his house and they weren't really his family there might have been something about that in the dialogue it's kind of unclear it's hard in anthologies as i said with the the time economics to clarify certain things yeah she gives him a a speech there about how you know controlling your powers and not hurting people and uh well yeah apparently she adopts him and they drive off and presumably you know to wherever i'm not sure what they were trying to say with the end of this because the kid maimed one of his sisters and sent the other one to an alternate dimension to be killed by a cartoon and then at the last minute of this thing they're like the boy just wants to be loved and i'm having a hard time feeling sympathy for him (laughs) he's just a little dickhead who kidnapped people in his house and made them be his family and then like terrorized them lorded over them with his powers it's just i and i love the way this this thing is shot like the set design is bonkers and there's uh there's sequences where you you get the typical like awesome effects of the time which are practical and amazing but um and there's that that there is that campy dante edge to it which is you know having one foot in absurdity and it, that being said it's a good segment i do like it but i'm not sure entirely what where they're going with this ending there's nothing i'm not sure you don't always not every twilight zone has to have a message let me put it this way but like this one it's unclear the child is just such an insufferable douche that you don't really care you know about his redemption in the end I think that I think it was in dialogue that he like let everybody go in the end, but he still kind of sort of I don't know took away a girl's mouth, and then shot another one into a cartoon. It's just I am schizophrenic about this episode because I like a lot of the things that they're doing, but they they kind of dip their toe in absurdity, but I don't think ever dove in and and became serious about it. Like, I would like to see how dark he could have done. Maybe it was meant to be darker before the accident. But uh, imagine what they could have done with the godlike powers. With uh, 80s special effects as opposed to early 60s TV TV special effects. They could have really taken his powers for a walk. And, and although they do, it, there's never the the kind of menace that you get from Anthony's power in the, the Twilight Zone. Uh, episode at one point he turns a dude into a jack-in-the-box you know and you don't you don't really see it but it's 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 a really good scene and this one is just it's kind of a beast of a different cloth and that doesn't make it bad it just i'm of two minds like one day you'll ask me what do you think of this segment i'll be like i like it and some days i'll be like nah kind of a miss man kind of a miss and uh, I don't know where I'm at. I'm somewhere in between right now. I wouldn't not recommend it, but it's kind of it's kind of hard to swing with it because you kind of have like one one decent episode with a very unclear kind of resolution, and then you have like the syrupy sweet, you know, on Golden Pond segment directed by Steven Spielberg. 
And then you get this kind of fantastical, I'm not sure what they were going for with this one. And it's, it's very well cast. It's, as I said, it's well shot. Production design out the wazoo. You know, good sound effects. Good score through the whole movie, but I don't know. It just feels unclear and maybe a little hollow. I might, I'd, I'd say probably about a 6, 6.5 out of 10. So, you know, don't skip it, but, you know, don't, don't go out of your way. It's, it's a fair enough remake of the original Twilight Zone episode. It's honestly quite a bit different. It takes the main impetus and a couple small plot points and kind of creates its own story. And it, it's not bad. <laughs> I recommend this movie at the end of the day. It is a bit of a mess. It's not entirely uh, faithful to a lot of the themes of if it's show, of the show that it's representing, but it's you know, it's a good t- it's a pretty good time. But we're coming into our last segment and uh, cart before the horse, the best segment, which is George Miller's Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet. And we open with some kind of trippy footage of uh, John Lithgow, uh, fully already insane in the in the airplane bathroom and uh this man uh he's he's a professor i believe he's a professor he's a writer he's written textbooks but he's obsessed with statistics and numbers and so he is just just a terrible flyer i guess he he's one of those guys who can't get any, get that stuff out of his head it doesn't help that like once he actually gets sat down after the the stewardesses come and grab him and you know, nicely, they usher him back to his seat, and then he opens up a, up an airport. Uh, sorry, a uh, newspaper, and then he sees a news about another uh, a terrible airplane wreck. But <laughs> things aren't really going his way. Now, and how? Now, this one differs from the the original episode, in as much as William Shatner played the character in the in the night in the sorry season five episode of. Twilight Zone. Uh, honestly, probably one of the last great episodes they kicked out in the original series, and it was directed by Richard Donner. But William Shatner starts out uh, maybe a little nervous, but he's clearly like finished probably some training about flying anxiety and such. And he actually starts out very kind of reserved and normal, but uh, Lithgow is already at 11. <laughs> he starts at 11. And somehow he finds new numbers after 11. It's it's insane. There's this little girl running around snapping pictures on a Polaroid. She also has a ventriloquist dummy, which is equally creepy. And this entire... It's shot very claustrophobically. Like, you are really faithfully put, placed into this character's kind of point of view. And it's a really good episode on building anxiety. So much so that he's on a plane and it's storming. There's lightning all the time and he's, he's you know, suffering. But that's before he just looks out his window and he sees something. Something on the wing. Fuck, that was a terrible Shatner. I'm going to I'm try it again. Hang on. <clears throat> There's something on the wing. Some thing. Yes, my Shatner is imitating Jim Carrey, imitating William Shatner. And he immediately, well, he sees this creature 
and it looks very different from the original. In the original series, you do see the creature, and the creature kind of looks like, I don't know, the, the Grimace, the mascot from McDonald's. It kind of looks like that. And honestly, the first time I saw it, I thought it was hilarious. It wasn't scary or anything. It was just kind of the, the creature design was unfortunate. I still love the episode, but it's just he's just kind of this poofy guy. You know, it's just like the grimaces on the wing. But this one is, is almost like I would describe it as hmm, kind of like a human sized gremlin. I think that was very much what he was going for with these big bulging eyes and kind of. I'm not sure if they're like tentacles coming out the back of its head or if it's like a kind of a sort of Rastafarian hairstyle, but it is it is far more effective and it's it's shown in it's sticking around with one of the engines and lightning strikes and he he basically sees this thing like destroy the engine. And so he yeah, you're going to hear this phrase a lot. So John Lithgow freaks out at this point. And they come in and kind of like try to calm him down and they say let's just you know why don't we just calm down and he says no nah, there's something on the wing i'm telling you so he finally takes the uh this i say stewardess i think i don't know i don't know if we're supposed to call him that anymore but i apologize i'm not up on the <laughs> i don't fly so the uh the airline sky waitress i'm not sure what they call them i, I don't mean to disparage it at all but i uh, yeah, she gives them I'm assuming maybe a Valium or something. She says, I, I got these things and I'm not supposed to do this, but you probably need one of these. And he probably needs a couple. So he gets calmed down. You know what I mean? He's like, he has a blanket over him. He's like closing his eyes. He's like, he's trying to space out, trying to, trying to center himself. And you can see him like he's still uncomfortable. And after a, after a minute or two, he gets brave and he opens the uh, the blind over the window, you know, just very slowly. Like he's probably not at the, not uh, expecting anything, and he opens the window and it's the gremlin's face right in the window, and he's like, ah! And they actually they have like a like a flash image of his eyes bulging out, like for real bulging. Like it was, I believe it was the Road Warrior. Was it the Road Warrior? Where they had one of the one of the uh, antagonists' eyes bulge out right before they collide with something, so it's real. It's a George Miller motif, and so take a shot. John Lithgow freaks out. <laughs> There's this big guy who keeps watching him from the seat in front of him, and this guy is like if a if a sausage roll became a human being. He looks like the personification of a human bulldog. He reveals himself to be a an airline or an FAA agent. I'm not sure <laughs> what I'm saying. Um, probably didn't pass the physical, but yeah, because he's a very large man. He's helping the the stewardesses calm him down, and the, one of the pilots comes back even and talks to him, and Lithgow says, listen, just tell me, okay, did, are, did have we lost one of our engines? Because that would help to kind of credit his account. So, and the pilot actually says, um, uh, yes, uh, actually, now that you mentioned it a few moments ago, we lost engine number three or number four there on the outboard, which is exactly where the creature was. And he says, but it was struck by lightning. That's what happened. And that's my story. And I'm sticking to it. 
And at this point, they don't handcuff him, although that's probably would have been the right move because this he's I think he's clearly distressed and disturbed to a point where he just cannot be contained. And when you're when you're talking about an airplane uh, full of uh, you know you know innocent lives in the middle of a thunderstorm and you lost an engine and then this guy is losing it, uh, you got to have some kind of restraints on there. Like right, I know I know the FC FAA guy has handcuffs, but you got to have like maybe a straight jacket or something. But no, they kind of take him at his word. He's like, okay, lightning, okay, Whew. that's a load off my mind. Let's. Let's calm down for a minute. And then he, uh, sure enough, he takes a gander outside there again. He sees the creature. He's getting ready to take out engine uh, number three. So Lithgi finds a fire extinguisher and uh, very calmly, very subtly, very elegantly, he goes to break the window. (laughs) And it kind of cracks. And I don't think an airline window would crack even from a fire extinguisher but let's just say that it would. But he did crack it, and then he lifts the the agent's gun, and then he shoots out the window, and everybody on board is just like, what the fuck is going on? So, you know, they're losing cabin pressure. Things are flipping all over the place. Lithgow gets sucked out of the plane with the gun. The FAA guy grabs him and is holding him in, but he's, like, outside the plane in the middle of a thunderstorm, freezing, holding the gun at the gremlin who like very quickly like races up to him and like inhumanly fast and like eats his gun, <laughs> eats out the gun and then kind of gives him like a uh, 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 finger wag, which is like equally interesting, and creepy. And then you see the airport, they're closing in their emergency landing and they're about ready to, to land. So the gremlins like, fuck this. I'm out. He fucks off into oblivion but thankfully uh the airplane lives to fight another day they land lithgi's being taken out in a straight jacket on a gurney there and he's like so, he's just told them the story it's like so that's what happened I'm, I'm really a hero when you think about it and he was actually you know because there was a real creature through circumstances it just made him seem like a fucking insane person then the airplane crew arrives to take a gander at the uh, at the damage, as it were, as it were, and they're taking a look and uh, they notice all of the uh, the destroyed parts of the wing and the of the remaining engine, and they're like, "What the fuck happened?" Because this wasn't lightning, so there is some vindication for him at the end. I think that he ultimately would have been maybe found non-culpable because otherwise like you're non-fly list if this is post 9-11 you're probably gonna do some time maybe maybe in guantanamo if you're not if you're not lucky but the guy just looks at that damage he's like holy toledo so we cut to lithgow being put into the ambulance and uh sirens up taken off and uh, you hear the the paramedic driving he says that's enough of that noise and he turns off the siren and then he puts in a tape, and uh, what do you know? Let the midnight special. And Lithgow's like, I, I love Credence. And who doesn't? And Dan Aykroyd's like, heard you had a pretty big scare up there. You want to see something really scary? 
and it's Dan Aykroyd, as I, I, I already ruined. And then it cuts, and then it kind of zooms in on that Lithgow's face. He's like, rut row, there's your movie. Uh, Rod Serling's original narration cuts in at this point, which I think is a pretty nice touch. He does the, uh, the lead-up preamble, and then you have your movie. I like I like the ending. It's I I kind of I still feel bad for Lithka's character because he really was trying to help and and to save people, and he wasn't crazy. He was on his way there with the anxiety, but he he wasn't fully you know wackadoo. And at best, he's probably gonna be spending quite a while in a mental institution, and at worst, uh, the Ackroyd monster kills him in the ambulance, which. You know, it doesn't seem deserving, kind of. I mean, Albert Brooks didn't deserve it either, but I have no idea. Because Twilight Zone was always about just desserts in a way. Like, as I said, like a term I used earlier, like some kind of cosmic equilibrium where supernatural events will occur just to, like, straighten out, you know, karma. Bad things will find them. Good people, good things will find them. But there's not really that... There's not really that in this one, except for, I think, in the second story, I think the the worst story, obviously, with the the uh, elderly people who come to terms with their age. But beyond that, we got the, the racist guy who goes through hell and uh, maybe changed, but we wouldn't know because he gets sent to a concentration camp to die. And then you got the, uh, the guy who uh, viciously maimed two of or this boy who viciously maimed two of his sisters and uh this teacher finds him and says hey you don't have to be evil you can just be a benevolent kind of godlike boy and he says okay and then grows flowers and that's the end of your picture and he has no comeuppance from the shitty things that he did <laughs> which is interesting and then and then like and lithgow ending up with with Ackroyd and the ambulance it just there's there's no there's no good story reason. It was kind of they just wanted a neat little wrap up. And honestly, any other anthology, I would say pretty good, pretty pretty nice little wrap up. I really do like it. It's not emblematic of anything Twilight Zone oriented. And you know, there's enough small things they do to pay some fitting homage to to this earlier show, which is infamous and has only become more iconic as the years go by something to do with that amazing black and white photography and all of this amazing writing dealing with prescient cultural norms and all this interesting intense stuff and this one is kind of like a time capsule of 1983 1982 early 80s is it wholly successful? Not really. Is it watchable? Certainly so. Very much so. I said this at the top. It as as an anthology film, I probably give it maybe a week seven, and, and say, you know, go for it. You're not going to waste your time. It's not it's not abysmal by any stretch of the imagination. There's certainly a lot of talent behind and in front of the camera that makes it a really good time. But uh, it's just it's kind of deeply flawed throughout. A lot of its messaging, a lot of its choices, and it just doesn't, it doesn't nail the Twilight Zone aspect. And when you're, we're using that IP and trying to pay some kind of homage, it's, it's, it really is a detriment to the product that you're not like a faithful representation of what that represented. As I said, it became, um, 
It wasn't a bomb, but I'm not sure it was a hit. If it's if it was anything, it was a modest, modest hit. But I think a lot of that has to do with the the tragedy. And I'm still shocked that they let that footage, that they still kind of used all the Vic Morrow footage and left that segment in the film. Like even if you had 99% of the footage, but unfortunately that stuff they decided to shoot, I believe that was the impetus that like the redemption arc was something that was added at the last minute. And that's why they shot it last and not because of the, uh, the dangerous stuff. Although that they, some people do that and they're like, Hey, do you want to watch the last living moments of, of a great actor (laughs) knowing that he has like days left to live? It's like, yeah, sure. I'll take a gander at that. And even though there's a lot of interesting things going on in that episode, it just, the the sick feeling you have from the implications there just kind of permeates the entire affair and it honestly it, it doesn't create kind of a and so it's kind of unfair to judge the finished product because you can't divorce yourself from this tragedy i mean i kind of did when i was younger and i certainly enjoyed the crap out of it but it's just yeah it's kind of a hard one it's like the crow I mean, less, I mean, certainly less tragic by two human lives, but it's kind of, there's that macabre kind of fascination with it. It kind of changes how you interpret it. This one is right now, uh, the only place that it's streaming for free is on the Roku channel with ads. So uh, if you're, if you're at all, oh, so this is early 2024, very early 2024. So if you are interested and have the Roku channel. It's on there with ads, like I said. Um, I only watched the last segment on there. I had the DVD, but I just didn't want to get back up. So uh, feel free. The sound was a little shitty, I think, but it might just might just be my settings. I'm not sure. But yeah. Pop some popcorn and enjoy yourself. So the, following this, the Twilight Zone would then get an 80s iteration of the show. And this would start in 85 was it it ran for three seasons uh, started shortly after this which is insane because i i would think that maybe after the obvious you know tragedy that maybe we would leave the ip alone for a little while but shortly after this um the first season or two were were pretty good there was there's some some crap some filler but there was actually a lot of really strong writing going on uh, they produced a third season purely to get the number of episodes up to 100 so they could put it in syndication. And so the third season suffers quite a bit. There's still some pretty good episodes in season three, but nothing like nothing to you know, get crazy about. And then uh, it would sit still for a while until 2002 when UPN would bring it back for a single season, this time hosted by Forrest Whitaker. This is the first time somebody's hosted that wasn't Rod Serling because in the 80s iteration, there wasn't a physical narrator. There was just uh, Charles Aidman, I believe, was the voice. So this time it's Forrest Whitaker, and it's very of the early 2000s, you know, music style. So it's kind of stuck in that in that pocket. And, uh, you know, as with most anthology, there's there's some strong episodes. But uh, probably, I would say, more bad ones than most. It's just kind of stuck in its time period. It's it's a deeply flawed 
version of it. Probably the least faithful. But I, I must warn, though, that I haven't seen the Jordan Peele one. So when those when that one comes out in 2017 or 18, and then that only ran for two seasons. So you can tell, like, it's, it's an idea that they want to tap into again, but they have no idea how to do it. I think they can, and I think that Black Mirror is kind of its its heir apparent to the throne of uh, ambitious stalwart anthology. But as for the other iterations, it's just, it's hard to, it's lightning in a bottle. It was a once in a, once in a lifetime thing. And this was the beginning of the, the downslope on anthologies. This is where they started to see that it's not like the cash cow they'd want it to be. They, they'd have a couple more attempts down the road, but for a while, this is kind of the death knell of the, the Hollywood produced anthology. And three people, unfortunately, I'm sorry, I keep bringing, it's just hard to avoid talking about this disgusting thing. But I, you know, I want to deeply thank anybody who's listened to more than five minutes of this shit. This is purely, I just do this purely out of love. And if one person listens, like, uh, I learned a couple things, uh, then my time wasn't wasted. I enjoy rambling about this nonsense. And my cats tried to ruin my time and 2023 tried to ruin my time. But you know what? Here we are. <laughs> We're talking Twilight Zone, the movie, and we'll meet down the road of peace. Until next time, kitties. Stay scared.